If you have ever thought about starting your own podcast, you should check out Riverside. Riverside is an online recording studio that lets you record podcasts and video in studio quality from anywhere. And if you click on the affiliated link in the episode description and you buy a subscription, you will also be supporting the podcast. And if you're going to start your own podcast or you just want to continue to listen to great podcasts, you need headphones or speakers. If you click on the Amazon affiliated link, you can get great deals on headphones and speakers. And if you make a purchase, it will also help support the podcast. Both links will be in the episode description if you are interested. Before I get started on this episode, I wanted to give a content warning. In this episode, I talk about suicide. If you've listened to any of my previous episodes where I have given a content warning, you know that I give you a warning within the episode before I start talking about a sensitive subject matter. But with this episode, I talk about suicide on three separate occasions. So instead of stopping and starting the story three separate times, what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave a timestamp in the description when I start talking about suicide and when I stop talking about suicide and I will do that for each time so if you need to skip over those parts you can do that and as always if you need to skip this episode entirely I perfectly understand all right now let's get into the episode This story is about the dangers of not communicating with each other. It is about paranoia and what happens when it is mixed with power. Paranoia builds walls around the people that it infects and it refuses to let any reality sneak in through the cracks. And when the paranoia fades away and logic returns, all that is left in the wake is the deadly consequences. Hi, my name is Courtney Jewell. And you are listening to the first episode of the second season of History Shelf, a podcast about history that proves that sometimes fact is even more interesting than fiction. If you listened to the first season of this podcast, thank you for returning. If you are new here, welcome. And don't worry if you didn't listen to the first season, you won't be lost in today's episode, because each season I pick a new theme. But if you want to listen to the first season, all the episodes are available wherever you listen to your podcasts. For the first season, I chose the theme King Henry VIII's Inner Circle and the people he was an asshole to. For the second season of History Shelf, I have chosen the title Something Wicked This Way Comes. You may know that that comes from the William Shakespeare play Macbeth. I am going to be talking each week for the next 15 weeks about someone from history that was accused of witchcraft. But as we go along, you will find that the wicked I am referring to is not the ones that were accused, but rather the accusers. You will find that those that were accused were obviously not actually witches, 
but victims of people out for revenge and personal gain and those caught up in the hysteria of it all. For this week, I am talking about Leo Chi. Chi was born in 128 BC in China during the Hong Dynasty. The Hong Dynasty was ruled by the House of Leo. Chi was formerly known as Crown Prince Wei. His parents were Emperor Wu upon and Empress Wei Zivu. Chi was his father's oldest son and was the heir apparent. I think this story first needs to start with giving you some background information on Chi's family and on the Hong Dynasty. The Hong Dynasty was one of the greatest dynasties. It is second only after the Zhou Dynasty. The Hong Dynasty is considered to have defined what is considered Chinese culture. It is a dynasty that lasted longer than any other dynasty, lasting for more than 400 years. It lasted from 202 BC to 9 AD to again from 25 AD to 220 AD. Emperor Wu became emperor on March 9, 141 BC, and he reigned until March 29, 87 BC. Empress Wei Zivu was Emperor Wu's second wife. Emperor Wu's first wife was Empress Chen Jiao, who was also his cousin. She was infertile and a jealous woman. She was jealous of Emperor Wu's concubines. Jiao was found using witchcraft against Emperor Wu's concubines. She was disposed of in 130 BC as a result of her use of witchcraft. Zivu had been Emperor Wu's favorite concubine since 138 BC, and she had bore him three daughters. In 128 BC, she gave birth to Qi, and Emperor Wu made her his empress. So that was the backstory on the Hong Dynasty and Qi's family. But what was Qi's childhood like? Well, his father made sure that Qi had an excellent education. His father constructed the Broad Vision Academy so Qi would have a well-rounded education. When Qi was born, his father was elated. He ordered poets to write paeans to celebrate the birth of the prince. But just because that Chi was his father's firstborn son didn't automatically mean that he would get the throne. After all, Emperor Wu was his father's 11th son. But because of the celebration of Chi's birth, it was believed that Chi would be the heir. It became more obvious that Emperor Wu was trying to prepare Chi to take over the throne after his death as Chi grew older. As Chi grew older, his father involved him in government. He would even make his son prince regent when he was away. Chi was well respected by his father, even though their politics and approach to governing was vastly different from one another. Emperor Wu was very much interested in expanding the Han Dynasty and spreading Chinese influence as much as he could so much that it put a burden on his own people. Chi was different. He cared about his people, and he did not stay silent about all the ways that he disagreed with the way his father was governing. Chi was known to be a man of peace. He was known for his kindness and openness. He believed in and fought for justice. 
He helped overturn wrongful convictions. He also believed in softer punishments, as opposed to his father's more harsher policies. In 113 BC, Qi married his consort, Lady Shi. Lady Shi is the only well-known consort of Qi. Together, Qi and Lady Shi had a son named Jing. Like I said earlier, Qi had a very different way of governing. And when you are different, you often get enemies. But Qi was kept safe by his well-respected uncle, General Wei Qing. But in 106 BC, General Wei Qing died. And so he could no longer keep his nephew safe from the political factions plotting against Qi. The end of Emperor Wu's reign was plagued with paranoia, nightmares, and hallucinations. He had a nightmare that hundreds of wooden puppets were beating him with sticks, and he swore he saw an armed stranger walking past him. Something that Emperor Wu was extremely fearful of was witchcraft. By 91 BC, Emperor Wu's witch hunt was out of control. It seemed like he was convinced just about everyone was using witchcraft against him. And the emperor was hunting important people. Members of court were being slaughtered. Prime Minister Gongsun and even Emperor Wu's own daughters, Princess Yangshi and Princess Julie, were among the victims of the witch hunt. And when the emperor accused someone of witchcraft, it was not just the accused that had to pay the price. Emperor Wu executed the accused and their entire family. It was not long before almost all of Qi's political supporters were among the murder count of Emperor Wu's witch hunt. By this time, Qi's mother, Zivu, was no longer Emperor Wu's favorite. He had moved on to Lady Zhao. Lady Zhao gave birth to Emperor Wu's youngest son, Fuling. It was rumored that Lady Zhao had been pregnant for 14 months with her son. This was the same as Emperor Yao. He was a legendary emperor that lived to be 99 years old. Emperor Wu was thrilled that he could father a son with such potential that it soon began to look like that Fuling was going to replace Qi as the crown prince. Emperor Wu's growing paranoia and the fact that most of Qi's supporters were dead created the perfect opportunity for Qi's enemies, and they took it. Emperor Wu's health had started to decline, so Jiang Cheng, who was a high minister, convinced the emperor that witchcraft was causing the emperor to become sick. Qi and Chong were not friends. Qi and Chong became enemies when Chong had arrested one of Qi's assistants for improper use of an imperial right-of-way. Chong actually feared that he would be executed the moment Qi became emperor, so Chong decided that he would get rid of Qi before Qi got rid of him. Su Wen was another that had bad blood with Qi. Wen was Emperor Wu's chief eunuch, Wen had, on multiple occasions, falsely accused Qi of committing adultery with Emperor Wu's junior concubines. He also kept Qi and Qi's mother, Zavu, from getting in contact with Emperor Wu. Both Chong and Wen decided to team up and become Qi's undoing.
Chung convinced Emperor Wu that he should search the palaces for items of witchcraft, even Chi and Zavu's house. Chung had his men search high and low for proof that Chi was using witchcraft against his father. Chung's men dug holes everywhere in their home. They hardly left them enough room for Chi and Zavu to lay down their beds. Chung claimed that when they were searching Chi's palace, that he found a doll and pieces of cloth that had mysterious writings on them. These items were planted by Chung. Chi was shocked and he didn't have many options. Chung had backed Chi into a corner, and he only saw one way out. Chi turned to his teacher, Shida. Da reminded Chi of the story of Chao Gao and Ying Vuzu. Gao was an official of the Qing dynasty, in 210 BC, Gao falsified Emperor Qing Shi Huang's final edict. The emperor's eldest son, Vu Zhu, was supposed to be the crown prince. But after the emperor died, Gao falsified the emperor's final edict and made the emperor's youngest son, Hu Hai, the crown prince. Hu Hai just happened to be the son that Gao had tutored. The falsified edict also ordered Vuzu to commit suicide. Da thought that it was a possibility that Emperor Wu was dead. Because remember, Wen had cut off communications she had with his father. So Da only saw a rebellion as the only way to get Qi out of the situation he found himself in. Chi wasn't interested in a rebellion. He just wanted to talk to his father. He believed that he could explain his case and everything would be clear and all right. But Chong was one step ahead of him. He already sent messengers to Emperor Wu to report that Chi was guilty of witchcraft. So an uprising was the only thing that Chi had to choose if he wanted a chance to make it out alive. He knew that Chung and Wen were the ones behind the false accusations of witchcraft against him. He plotted how to seek his revenge. He had one of his men impersonate a messenger from Emperor Wu. He had him arrest Chung. With Chung subdued, Chi personally executed the man that had planted false evidence against him. Chi's next move was to form an army. Chi's mother, Zavu, had allowed her son to use palace guards and give weapons to civilian supporters. Chi was forming an army against Chung's co-conspirators. Things might have turned out differently for Chi if Wen had not managed to escape arrest from the men that arrested Chong. Wen quickly fled to Emperor Wu. Wen told the emperor that his son was trying to overthrow him. Emperor Wu trusted his son and could not believe that his own son would plot against him. He correctly believed that his son was only after Chong. Everything was all just a misunderstanding, and it could be swiftly cleared up if he just had a conversation with his son. So Emperor Wu sent a low-ranking eunuch to go and get the crown prince, so he could explain himself. But the eunuch was too scared to go after someone 
that might be planning to overthrow their own father, and so he didn't go. The eunuch reported back falsely that Chi had tried to kill him. Emperor Wu then allowed his anger to take over, and he ordered his nephew, Prime Minister Leo Chimal, to stomp out the uprising. Chi tried his best to get an official army on his side, but with one army, Emperor Wu had already sent word to them that they were to attack Chi, and the other didn't want to get involved at all. Chi and his makeshift army of palace guards and armed civilians were on their own. On top of all of that, Emperor Wu hung his banner outside the capital to let the people know that he was still in charge. Seeing this caused some to lose support for the rebellion. The fighting in the capital lasted five days. It was a story of David versus Goliath. Only this time, David was not victorious. Chi fled with two of his sons. Most of the rest of Chi's family were killed. His mother committed suicide after her seal was taken away from her for supporting her son's rebellion. The only one of Chi's family that was spared was his months-old grandson, Leo Bingyi. That child was put in prison and would later become Emperor Shi Yin of Han on September 10, 74 BC. Prince Chi was a man on the land. A junior official, Ling Hu Ma, put his life on the line and spoke to the emperor on behalf of Qi. And it did work a bit, but the emperor didn't issue a pardon for his son. Meanwhile, Qi was in Hu County, staying with a poor shoemaker. Qi felt guilty that he was relying financially on the kind poor shoemaker. And so Qi got in touch with a friend that he knew was in Hu County. That was all local officials needed to track Chi down. Chi was surrounded. There was no way he was going to be able to make it out of the shoemaker's house alive. So at the age of 37, Chi hung himself. The soldiers eventually made their way into the house and slaughtered Chi's two sons and the family that was hosting Chi. The officials Li Shou and Cheng Fucheng quickly grabbed the body of Prince Qi and headed straight for the emperor. Emperor Wu was beside himself with grief as he looked upon the dead body of his beloved son. Even though he was heartbroken, he still gave the officials the reward he was offering for those who brought him his son. The officials left with their reward, and Emperor Wu was left with his sorrow. So what was the aftermath of Prince Qi's death and the witch hunt of 91 BC? Well, Emperor Wu came to realize that the witchcraft accusations were mostly false. He realized that his son was innocent. Su Wen was able to escape being captured by Qi's men, but he was not able to escape the wrath of Emperor Wu. The emperor had Wen burned alive. Jiang Cheng's family, both immediate and extended, were executed, and every official that was promoted for hunting Qi down was also executed. Emperor Wu also changed the way that he governed. He started to support the ideals that Prince Qi supported. He also built the Palace of Sun Grieving and Platform of Longing for Return. Emperor Wu officially rehabilitated his son's name, and Qi's line lived on, even though most of his family was killed. 
As I mentioned earlier, she had a grandson that was spared, and that grandson would go on to become emperor, although not right after Emperor Wu. After Emperor Wu, Emperor Wu's youngest son, Fuling, did become Emperor Zhao, but Emperor Zhao would die childless. And then after that, the throne went to his nephew, Prince Hua of Changyi. But after that, it went to Qi's grandson, Emperor Xi Yin. Emperor Xi Yin did not immediately restore the title of his grandfather out of respect for his great uncle, Emperor Zhao. But in 73 BC, Emperor Xi Yin did restore his grandfather's title. But he gave his grandfather a new name. His new name was Lee, which means unrepentant. And that was the life of Prince Leochi. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of the second season of History Shelf. There are 15 episodes planned for this season. Next week's episode is going to be about Dame Alice Kettler. I hope you come back for that. I want to mention a few things before I go. I want to thank you again if you are a return listener from Season 1 and welcome you if you are new here. Also, if you want to follow this podcast on social media, the Twitter for this podcast is at HistoryShelfPod, the Instagram is at History underscore Shelf underscore Pod, and the Facebook page is History Shelf Podcast. Also, if you want to help out this podcast, by buying some merch, you can do that. The link to the History Shelf merch store is underneath the bio on this podcast's Twitter page. You can also become a Patreon. This podcast is always going to be free, but there are some perks that come along with becoming a Patreon. The first tier is called History Student, and that is $1 a month. With that, I will send out a thank you tweet to you. The second tier is called History Fan, that is $3 a month. With that, you get the first tier, plus you get to vote in a poll that helps me choose the theme for the next season of History Shelf. The third tier is called History Buff. That is $20 a month. With that, you get the first two tiers, plus you get a handwritten note mailed to you from me. And the last tier is called History Lover. That is $40 a month. With that, you get the first three tiers, plus you get to choose one item from the merch store. You can find a link to the Patreon for this podcast on this podcast's Twitter page. I have pinned that tweet. But again, the best way for you to support this podcast is to continue listening to it. You can also rate this podcast five stars if you're on a platform that lets you do that. Also, sharing this podcast with your friends and family on social media will help out a great deal and help grow this podcast. All right, well, until next time, keep learning, keep loving history, and come back for next week's episode.